0: Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway.
1: And I'm Cameron Conway.
0: And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway here with Cameron Conway. And this week I continue my quest to explore work-life balance
1: by working nonstop and reading another entire personal finance book in a couple days. That's
0: right. Are, are you saying I'm doing this wrong? <laughs> I'm definitely doing this wrong. Anyways, I am still trying to find people that have gone before me that have figured this out so that I can kind of reconcile where I am in my own personal life with what I do for a living. And by that I'm trying to find a balance that will work not just for me, but for other people as well, between our need to save money for the future and also our desire to spend money on positive experiences today. So that's why I picked up the book Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. I went into it with high hopes because the concept is incredibly attractive. The idea that as you kind of take your last breath, your bank account shifts down to that 0.00 zero zero dollars, and you've spent it all. So you've maximized your life fulfillment in terms of every single dollar was spent, hopefully for something that was fun and for something that you enjoyed. But how realistic is a concept like this?
1: Well, it's a concept, it's kind of difficult because you are kind to predict the future and math things out. And so the kind of the goal is to live long enough to run out of money, have all your good experiences. And then once you're gone, have your children curse you because there's nothing left for them.
0: Well, and that is something that Bill Perkins addresses in the book. But I will say first, as I was kind of getting my way through this, um, and it wasn't the math heavy kind of digging to the numbers book that I was hoping for, but um know your author right that's something that i've said in the past and i looked this guy up and it turns out he is actually a really really very very rich and successful energy trader like a hedge fund guy so when you know your author you can kind of understand their biases a little bit better He has made a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money during his lifetime. And as a hedge fund guy, he would be around people that have serious money as well. So when you put that framework on the thoughts that he's having and the advice that he's giving... It does seem to be tailored a little bit more to people that are maybe in that next class um, and have the level of money that you or I will never see in our entire lifetimes. Let's be honest here. Um, But there is that idea that wealthy people do think differently than the average person in a certain aspect like they don't necessarily see money as finite or as a resource that can be depleted right if you've got so many businesses and so many kind of side cash flows going or if you can make a huge sum of money in a short period of time of course that's going to change your thinking whereas kind of you and i we've got our paycheck coming in that's it (laughs) that's it you kind of have to live with it and you have to make trade-offs around what's important. And I think that's why frugal, living frugal and that whole movement here is something that appeals to a lot of people because it's something that is controllable. It's something that you can do something about today. You can manage your expenses. Now, the author was heavily influenced by the Your Money or Your Life book um, by Vicki Robbins and Joe Dominguez that we've talked about several times before on the show. It's kind of that Bible of the fire movement and the concept that your life is essentially a representation of energy. Your time is all that has value. And as you spend your time to earn money, you're essentially spending your life energy. But the author in this case takes it a step further. And he goes to the extreme of saying that money in the bank at death represents a lost opportunity in the sense that the individual who dies with money in the bank has missed out on potential experiences. And this, for me, is kind of where it goes a little bit off the rails.
1: Yeah, so again, the the big caveat of this book is it's kind of marketed to the average person, but the kind of ability to really apply this it's really kind of locked behind that millionaire status i'm not talking about modern home millionaire i'm talking about like six figures in your checking account waiting to be spent and yeah so it it kind of becomes this guessing game of how to spend money fast when not to spend money and it really is kind of a, a very different take on the fire movement
0: well, sure. And I'll give you an example right from the book. So I'm going to kind of quote this. And there's an example of a lady, he named her Elizabeth, who starts saving at age 45. And she's going to work to age 65. And she has a 401k. And
1: little note, if you want to know more about what that means, go back to last week's episode where we break down the differences between what Americans write in books and what we can actually apply in Canada.
0: That's right. So she has her 401k and she has saved $320,000 over that period of time at $16,000 per year for 20 years. And this is the author's math, not mine. Uh, She also has $450,000 in home equity, and he's making the assumption that she spends $32,000 in retirement. So he said that her roughly $770,000 at $32,000 a year would last her 24 years. But in his assumption, again, and we're not going to check his math on this um, because a whole bunch of things going on here, like you can't spend a house, uh, you can get a HELOC, but there's other implications there. But anyways, um, let's say she dies at 85. And she leaves behind $130,000. I'm going to quote this next part because it's really important to understand the author's mentality. And I will say, I was so surprised just because this is a very, very popular book. It's had nearly 10,000 reviews on Goodreads, just under four stars. Uh, But when I was kind of digging into what people really thought about this just going through different forums and reddit and stuff like that uh, the feedback was more negative than positive at least in what i could find but i quote let me go back to elizabeth and her retirement scenario so the author says open quote i want you to really think about the true cost the terrible waste of leaving behind hundred and thirty thousand dollars I said that you can think of this money as foregone experiences. Whatever the $130,000 could have bought for Elizabeth. That's sad in itself, but it's not only that. By looking at what it took to save that much money, at Elizabeth's hourly rate, you can see how many hours she spent at her office job that she did not need to spend there. How many hours was that? Well, divide the 130000 by $19.56, and you get a little bit more than 6,646 hours. That's 6,646 hours that Elizabeth worked for money she never got to spend. That's more than 2.5 years of a 50-hour work week, two and a half years of working for free. What a waste of life energy, end quote.
1: Sorry. Yeah, you can kind of see the ultra-pragmatic hedge fund mindset kind of creeping in here where everything is a either a potential opportunity or a loss opportunity. And really, he's just trying to math it out to show that in, ex- in this example, a someone worked for nothing and didn't enjoy what they could have gotten from their net return from the work they put in.
0: Right, but if we're looking at the probability, so Elizabeth dies at 85, what if Elizabeth lived to 90? Or what if Elizabeth lives to age 100? What happens to Elizabeth then? At this point, we're essentially flipping a coin on does she die before or after not only her life expectancy, but the amount of time that she put in working to accumulate those dollars. I think that this is kind of where the flaw in the argument emerges. Because no one knows when they're going to die with Any actual sense of reality. Yes, we can use statistics and averages, but we've looked at the flaws of that before. You put yourself in this very real risk zone of running out of money prematurely. And yes, there are social nets to catch us. I mean, here in Canada, you're not going to be put out in the streets. You can take part of some income tested benefits for assisted living facilities if you qualify or full care if you qualify, if your health is deteriorated. But again, those have some tests around them, like your inability to do it by yourself, right? So that is something to consider. But let's get beyond that for just a minute. And let's talk about what is the author's main point? What is he trying to provoke in us because he's viewing this as a positive concept that can really impact someone's ability to fulfill themselves during their lifetime. And the author talks about a concept called memory dividends, which is basically to say that when you're older, The return on your money or the money you have invested is not what's going to be giving you joy, it's the memories that you've created up until that point. And he makes the argument that as you're going along in your life, as you get older, your earnings potential hopefully is increasing and so is your net worth. So the amount of income that you have and the amount that you have saved is hopefully going up. but. On kind of the reverse side, as you age, naturally your health is on a bit of a decline. So he's created essentially a curve. He calls it the fulfillment curve, where on either side of this, you have money up, health down. And he says that there's a point of optimization there where you're at your peak health and the peak amount of money that you should try to accumulate during your lifetime. So the author suggests a decumulation strategy should begin during those peak years. So he calls it cracking into your nest egg, spending the money on fulfilling and meaningful experiences to maximize kind of what you get out of your life. So right or wrong, I'll explain the concept a little bit better
1: so I guess kind of what you're saying is you have to kind of picture this big hill. You put in all this effort and all this time this money, to get to the top of it. And then once you're at that top, there's like a little castle or Disneyland or something else you can kind of have fun and enjoy. And then as you kind of get past that peak, you end up starting to roll down the hill. And that's about it, right?
0: (laughs) Something wondrous and shiny. And yes, hopefully the, the decline down isn't too bumpy along the way. But yes, he is viewing it as an intersection of three points, money, health, and free time. And the idea being that (laughs) as we all are in our lives, there's usually one in short supply, right? Like early on in your life, you might be short on money, but you've got a lot of health and a lot of free time. Whereas at the midpoint, you've got more money, uh, maybe a little less health, but we're usually doing pretty good. And free time, okay, kind of in the middle. And then as you get older, free time takes the favor and you're retired, you have a lot of time, but health might be declined. So even if you have a lot of money, Like I said, the argument is, can you enjoy it? And are you factoring in the diminishing returns that you might get on your ability to enjoy your life and your life experiences? And he does acknowledge that, yes, some experiences are good. Some experiences are free. I mean, I think that's probably one of the largest missed points in this book. Um, A lot of people can create a huge level of satisfaction and experiences that don't cost a lot. Like some of my favorite memories are going out for a lunch or having a coffee with someone that you really care about. And it's, I guess, really dependent on whether you want to capture those mountaintop experiences or not. So to quantify this, the author has something that he calls time buckets. Now, in financial planning, we call this goal setting. It's basically the same thing. But he basically says, take your life, look at your life as a continuous line. So from the age you are now to potentially your last days and divide your life into, he said, five to 10 year intervals. And what he's suggesting is that you determine what you want to experience during those times with the understanding that your ability to experience things could change as you get older. Now, obviously, I'm feeling a bit of a bias here against older people.
1: Wait, wait a second. If I'm understanding the author correctly, are you saying that we should put all these things into buckets until we finally kick one?
0: Oh no. You know what? I didn't go there, but that's hilarious. And yes, you are right. And um in the book, his little buckets looked surprisingly like tombstones, which is a little bit kind of dark and eerie. It was just kind of like one of those hand-drawn sketches, but they had like the bucket in a little curve at the top. I'm like, "Oh no, it had like the person's ages in there." Anyways, he kind of leaves it at putting those experiences in the bucket. As a financial planner, what we do is we look at costing out the cost of those experiences. We look at creating timelines and we look at how realistic it is with the amount of money that you can save to get to those experiences or if it's not realistic, what you need to do to get there. So I feel like that, which is kind of Financial Planning 101, if you meet with any financial planner, they will be going through these exercises with you where you are setting goals, where you are coming up with concrete plans to achieve those goals based on the amount of money you have. Whereas he was kind of like, oh, yeah, just write down the experiences you want, and it's all good from there. So there are some risks here that have to be discussed, of course. There's the huge risk of needing money later on. So let's say you hit 45 and you say, you know what, I'm going to do it. Crack and open the nest egg. I'm going to have incredible experiences now. And you haven't done the planning on the back end of this that says, how much do I actually need later on? Or... You haven't done a base calculation that says, at minimum, I need X amount of dollars for the remainder of my life. And again, we've always suggested planning to age 100, even though people disagree with us quite a bit on that one. I still think it's the most cautious thing to do. He did have, and I think the most practical advice in the book was kind of in these couple hidden sentences that you had to little look a little bit to find. But his strategy of doing this was essentially to shift risk onto other parties to make sure that it's not a risk that you're holding yourself. So let me explain a little bit further. He said, if you're really conservative and you're worried about not being able to live your lifestyle during retirement because you cracked open that nest egg and then you live longer, buy an annuity. And an annuity, of course, very similar to a pension plan, you give the insurance company a big pile of money, it gives you a guaranteed stream of income for the rest of your life. And there's interesting thoughts around annuities as part of retirement income planning, because once you've made that commitment and you've got a certain amount of dollars coming in that you know those dollars are going to stop when you die, it actually gives a lot more freedom to spend because this is what you have to spend today. Use it or lose it kind of thing, right? Sure, it can go into an account for your kids later on, or it can go to a charity or whatever institution you feel is most worthwhile and worthy of your hard-earned dollars. But having a fixed amount that you know is reliably there for you is a sense of freedom in and of itself. And in terms of health changes, of course, remember, this is an American author so different systems than what we have here in Canada but he suggested the use of long-term care insurance to offset the risk of large medical expenses and he kind of says in the book well hey you know what if something's bad's going to happen to you and you get hit with a big bill it's probably going to be more than you could have handled anyway without some type of insurance which is a fair and valid point you know people that get hit with these things usually get hit pretty hard so outsourcing risk to a company, an insurance company in particular, that will take those risks is a way to kind of crack open the nest egg. So you're viewing the premium that you're paying for whatever the type of insurance is as essentially the opportunity cost, right? So rather than saving the whole pool of money and managing it yourself and not spending it on anything else, you've offloaded that risk. It costs a premium. The premium is What you're paying them each month for this to cover this risk for you and then should the event occur then you get a larger sum of money should it not occur you're just out your risk premium so overall not a bad deal and it's the same argument with life insurance in this case as well do you want to leave some money to your kids of course buy a life insurance policy now this will not work for everyone if you're looking at this later in life You're not necessarily going to have the premium dollars to put aside as much money as you want for these different things. Long-term care insurance in Canada is increasingly difficult to get and there's only one provider left and I'm not even sure if they still offer it. So that is a consideration as well.
1: Well, yeah, even before COVID, it was getting harder and harder to find l- good long-term care insurance in Canada. But but even like you said, even just trying to get someone like a T100 at that later stage in life, it, those premiums can get pretty high. So then you're trying to balance out what the kids could get through an insurance policy, what they can get direct. You're kind of playing this whole game. And then you know, I think kind of the From what I've seen, the kind of the core concept of the book is just you spend it all yourself and they can take care of themselves.
0: Well, actually, he does address leaving money to your kids and leaving money to charity. And his solution is to gift them money now. Now, I'm sure a lot of kids are jumping up and down at that idea. Wow, mom and dad are going to give me a couple hundred grand today. I can, you know, get that down payment. I can buy that new car. And I mean, truly, we do see this. A lot of parents do truly, truly want to help their kids, especially with how much housing prices have changed. And they're trying to get their kids set up for the future. But in the book, he gave the example of a single mom who was struggling with three kids. I think it was three kids, with a bunch of kids. And um, he said, you know, she didn't get her inheritance until much later. When the kids were older, she had married. She was in a much stable situation. So his argument was... Give it to the kids when they need it the most and not later on. Now, of course, anytime you give away large sums of money, two things are happening. You're taking on more risk for yourself because you don't want to go back to those people that you gave money to and said, oops, sorry, Uh, can you help me out now? It's your turn. (laughs) But you're also accepting the fact that that money is not going to be allowed to grow in the future, where there would be the effects of compounding over time and potentially more left for them and for you to both equally share or share in some division at a point down the road in the future. So by decumulating a little too early, you're fogoring potential growth your foregoing potential growth opportunities um, that can be of great benefit because it's the argument do you want $100,000 today or do you want $150 or $200,000 you know in 15 20 years or whatever the time frame might be
1: yeah and kind of stepping back a little bit you're talking about how some parents would give the kids money so they can go out and get a down payment. But something else we haven't really talked about, which can really impact the kind of math you're doing here, is that this is also assuming that the people in this as kind of spend freely stage are like they paid off their house, they're homeowners, and it doesn't factor in those who are renting. And I feel like every single day I find another article about. A, a tenant who has just had their rates raised by like 50, 60, 80% out of nowhere. And this is something that can really impact this. And this is where the, the the divide between who this book was marketed to, who can actually live this out kind of widens dramatically.
0: Oh, definitely. And I think that like, like anything in life, different advice for different people, right? It's not, it's so hard to take a paintbrush and paint everyone the same color because we're not we're not all easily fit into these time buckets. Time buckets, that's not what it was for. But you know what I mean. So I guess kind of the biggest disappointment for me when I was reading this book, outside from the obvious that no one knows when they're going to die. So you really can't, other than having this be a concept, you really can't turn it into anything mathematically or in practice useful. Like it's its a good idea to get people thinking. But beyond that, I don't know how practically the application would work in a real-life planning scenario other than like his quick little buy an annuity, buy some insurance um, kind of thing, which again is not the right solution for everyone or for all of anyone's money uh, necessarily. And I felt like I was waiting for kind of that big moment, that big finish where there would be some math that would show me how everything came together, and it just wasn't there.
1: Is is the actual math in some sort of program hidden online somewhere? Oh,
0: you know what? Yeah, I didn't mention that. He, he used or paid someone, or I don't know if he did it himself or not, but there is an app that was developed to kind of calculate this fulfillment curve idea to kind of maximize when your health and your nest egg are at that optimization point. I did a, take a quick look at it on his website. Um... Inputs looked a little complicated. I honestly didn't take the time to try and figure it out uh, just because I didn't see the value of finding that optimized point because I think it's something that's a theory. I don't think it's something that's a real live practical number that you can put your finger on today. You could if you knew when you were going to die, but because you don't, it's so much harder to find. So his idea of the fulfillment curve that word kind of stuck in my mind and i that's that's what i was kind of waiting for i'm like how is he going to math this out how is he going to figure this out how is he going to solve it um and when when the book didn't do that i kind of got thinking for myself and i got thinking about a concept that i've been working on which kind of ranges the spectrum of regret Uh, And this finally got me looking at the other side of that, which is satisfaction, right? And for me, the concept is, does an extra dollar spent actually add an extra unit of enjoyment or does the money spent on enjoyment have a declining value once you've passed a certain threshold so here i am trying to quantify enjoyment which is hard to do and dollar spent which is a little easier to do right so but the idea is let's say you pay to buy the ticket to an experience that's going to be great and it is it's wonderful versus buying a VIP ticket that maybe you get one or two extra things, but the VIP ticket costs twice as much as your regular ticket. Did you really double your enhancement and your enjoyment of that experience? Or like if you're buying a strawberry shortcake, can you add whipped cream? Did that whipped cream enhance the value of your experience in relation to the dollar spent? And I think that that's something that everyone has to answer themselves. But the idea is that Creating a beautiful life doesn't necessarily require a lot of dollars. And I think the most beautiful of lives not because you're cheap or you're trying to be overly frugal or thrifty or whatever, or that you even can't afford it. But the most beautiful moments in life are ones where you're with the people you love, where you're not necessarily spending all that money. And I think the things that you remember, like if we're looking at this in the author's terms of memory, dividends, and enjoyment that compounds, even in an example that he gave, where he had an amazing birthday party on some private island or something like that, and he rented out like an entire hotel, like way beyond what you and I could ever do. Um, he valued the time with his family and he said the money spent was worth it because of the time with his family now I would argue well why did you need a private island for that what's wrong with your backyard what's wrong with you know the community room in your townhouse complex or your apartment what's wrong with going to a park in a free space and creating something that truly maximizes enjoyment because you've zeroed in on those things that give you enjoyment. And I'm increasingly convinced that it's not money. Money is a tool. Money is nothing other than a means to an end. And the end is getting to this place where we're having more enjoyment out of life, where we're spending our time more wisely so that we're not always grinding. I agree with that. And finding that balance, like I said, is something that I'm personally struggling with right now that I'm trying to get through and work through in my own mind to figure out how at the end of your life, you look back and say, yes, I'm satisfied. I've made the right choices. I've minimized regret and I've maximized experiences. But to say that those experiences need a million dollars in the bank or need $100,000 in the bank, well, what do we need? We need two fifty. No, but to say that you need a huge sum of money, I think, is an incorrect assessment of what brings people joy. So let's kind of leave it there for today. I'm continuing to think about this, but so that we don't bore you as I'm working through my own process, we're going to probably shift gears in the next few weeks to look into more detail. And I do want to actually dive into the math and the actual algorithms, the actual calculations that make this correct, Uh, not in terms of the money satisfaction part, but in terms of the concept of die with zero and the concept of decumulation. Because I think even though we use software on a regular basis, even though we have our tests, I think there's a lot more that can be done to deepen our understanding. And if we can share that with you, then you can use that to make your own life experience richer both in terms of the money spent, the maximized value for that money, and also your ability to retire comfortably and not compromising that as you enjoy your life in the meantime. So we'll call that a day for this episode. And like I said, hang tight, we will get more technical in the future. (laughs) whether that's a good thing or not, you can let me know. Tell me on the Facebook group. Uh, Come reach out to us if you'd like. We always like to chat with new people. If you're looking to become a client, it's Financial, brawnfinancial.com. You can help me explore the world of what matters most to people in personal finance. Uh, If you're outside of the province, we are working on finding out ways to have referral arrangements set up for you. And if you just want to chat, Please reach out through the Facebook group. It's Personal Finance Canada. We love to talk to you. We've talked to a couple people on the phone that have reached out over video calls, stuff like that. It's been fantastic to get to know folks that feel the impact. And of course, tell us how we can help you. Tell us how we can continue to grow and shape and tailor our content to something that is meaningful to you in your life, because ultimately it's going to help everyone, right? We're all in different places in our journey, but the more people that we can kind of bring together and impact, the better. So until next time, take care
1: and all the best.